It's Monday, September 11th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On ABC's This Week This Week, Democratic advisor Donna Brazile was asked by guest host Jonathan Carl about the fact that President Biden is unexciting, even to Democrats. Brazil's answer touched on areas involving charisma, habituation, staleness, and I think maybe even global warming. Democrats want somebody else. Of course, we always want another flavor ice cream because the one we've been digging on is melting. Digging on. She does know how to speak in an accessible vernacular, does she not? And she has demonstrated that the way to a Sunday show host's head is through his stomach. Here are some of Brazil's answers and analyses on this week over the past eight weeks. That's why when I go home, I don't talk politics. I talk about what I'm going to cook. That's and hard speak, to believe. And speaking of cooking, <laughs> I mean, come on, baby. You know, I, I'm going to stir no, fry, burn, and whatever I'm going to do. Is... Well, they're stirring the pots. I don't know if they're going to make a stew or, uh, uh, or make something else. So the notion that the Republicans have not had a bite at this apple is full. And maybe I should give you a little bit of that sugar high that uh, Rick talked about. I'll bake your cake. He should show up at the Brazil household on a Friday night when we have some good food. We'll show him how to have some emotion because after you eat our gumbo, you'll, all you'll go back and say, ooh, that was damn good. First of all, I miss those uh, fried cheese cur- uh, curls. I miss the pork chop on the stick, the fried butter and the fried dill pickles. Fried butter, not so like I, that. I just want to put it all on the table that <laughs> I enjoyed my time at the fair. When she went about comparing Joe Biden to vanilla ice cream, actually, she didn't say vanilla, did she? I just kind of imputed vanilla. But I said to myself, as, she, as soon as she started talking ice cream, what are the chances that Donna Brazil makes a food analogy? It's 100. It's about 100%. Tip O'Neill once said all politics is local. When Donna Brazil is talking politics, it's apparently locavore. On the show today, another political communicator who takes smaller bites of the rhetorical apple. Her name is Kamala, and to Nikki Haley, just Kamala, no surname. But first, I'm not sure which would be harder, truly understanding Herman Melville's magnum opus Moby Dick, or writing a novel sentence by sentence with the person you're married to. My next guest did both simultaneously. They are still married. This was, I suppose you could say, their white whale. Chris Batchelder and Jennifer Habel's new book is Day's Work. First time I've ever talked to co-novelists, husband-wife team. They know a lot about Melville. It's all up next. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Moby Dick is a long book, and thus ends my literary criticism. No, Moby Dick's a long book, but you know what? The pandemic lasted a long time. Put those two things together, and you have Day's Work, an interesting novel by the husband and wife team. Yes, two people wrote a novel, or did they? We'll get into it. The authors listed in alphabetical order, though I wonder if it's an order of contribution, are Chris 
Batch Elder and Jennifer Habel. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Immediately skeptical you are. I am because it's written. I don't have to tell you. I'll tell the audience. It's written the first person. That first person is Jennifer. So why is Chris, why, why is Chris credited? <laughs> this is a conversation that we had many times. Um, and we decided to go alphabetical because we thought it suggested that this was an equal, equal contribution, equally written book, which it is. Um, even though it has a female narrator. And I actually think that narrator, she does resemble me, but she also resembles Chris in some ways. And I think her voice is in some way a combination of our two. Oh, that's interesting. I thought it might have been you, Jennifer, but Chris is quoted so much, it's almost as if you've stolen his ideas and therefore it would be wrong not to, or it was at least an artistic choice to credit him on the book. But what you're saying is you each sat down, put pen to paper or finger to typewriter and wrote from the perspective of this female narrator. Yeah. And we actually wrote every sentence of the book together. We sat next to each other at a table and and composed each sentence collaboratively. Really? Have you had yeah. either of you ever done anything like that before? No, no never. No, never. Would and would have been um, terrified to do it, and you know, not interested. Yeah. So, okay. Number of uh, first, let's lay the predicate, as it were. The book is about uh, someone researching, or at least obsessed with Herman Melville. Does this parallel either of yours' actual experience? Yeah. I mean, I did become obsessed with reading about Herman Melville uh, during the pandemic. And so in that sense, the book is autobiographical, although I would stress that the narrator is a character and not me. Mm -hmm. But she did her experience uh, did parallel mine in that respect. Um, I also turned 50 during the pandemic, as did she. And so it does hew to that experience. And I did sort of rope Chris into my Melville obsession since we were home together. He would hear about Melville all the time. And um, as we started to actually write the book together, he sort of got into that research process as well. I feel like I infected him with Melville, basically. <laughs> Was there a worldwide pandemic in 2020? Is that true? No, I joke. <laughs> do you yeah. have two daughters? We do have two daughters. Okay. Yep. What's the, other than the fact that the narrator might have thoughts differing from yours. Are there major factual inconsistencies between the narrator and her husband and you guys? Well, for example, late in day's work, the um, narrator's husband goes down to the basement because he's been exposed to COVID. That never happened. Okay. You know, so that that's just for, and one example of something we made up. Do you, either of you sit in your car listening to folk tunes about two Norwegians who rode across the Atlantic? <laughs> no, no, no. The you know the biographer, the character we call the biographer, uh, did that um, and wrote about it, and it's a wonderful, wonderful moment and led for us in this in this um, uh, exciting day of writing where we were suddenly interested in these Norwegians that we'd never heard of before and actually went and followed them. Wait, what do you mean you followed them? Well, so we're early on, fairly early in the book, we were pretty, we, we were pretty um, 
closely focused on Melville and then a yep. little bit in biography we're keeping a tight orbit. And then we came to this day where the biographer says, you know, um, he'd been having a hard day of writing and he went out to his Bronco too and listened to um, this folk song about these two Nor- Norwegians who rode across the Atlantic in 1896, I think. So I think there was just a day, I remember it, there was a day where we were thinking, who are those guys? We looked them up, Harbo and Samuelson. And I, and there was a day where we were like, are we, this is an interesting story. Are we going with these guys? And we did. And that changed the, that changed our conception of the book. I think that this book was more capacious and it was more digressive than we had imagined. Yes. And I too followed those guys after reading about them in your book, having never heard of them and having their 50 something day trip across the Atlantic, a record that lasted for 114 years. It blew my mind. It was inspired by the police gazette, which I found out still exists, right? I knew it. I knew it was in the, you know, 19th century. The police gazette was in bar- better barber shops or maybe worse barber shops everywhere. And these two Norwegians literally rode across the Atlantic or road, uh, R-O-W-E-D. And did you know this? The police gazette never even paid them. They intimated there'd be a $10,000 reward and they never even got, they never a reward. got it. They, unbelievable. It was, a, it was in a way a perfect, I think the reason we were like, okay, let's go is because it, it, it resonated with the stuff we were curious about with Melville, which is grand ambition and, um, su- success of a sort. They made it, but a failure, nobody cared. Um, you know, they thought they would go on a speaking tour and people would, would be interested and nobody was interested. Even in Norway, they gave them a, a few bucks and they headed yeah. back, headed back to Jersey to, to, uh, to be oysters. Oyster yeah. That's right. That's right. Fantastic <laughs> achievement followed by just desperation to, well, we don't know of Harbo and Samuelson's, you know, their writings and may I please have a loan and, you know, desperately trying to get the imp- approval of other oyster men or whatever the Hawthorne parallel would be. But right. yes, you're right. It is interesting. Oh, my God. And the folk songs. I mean, I only found one on Spotify. Do many exist of Harbo and Samuelson? I don't think so. Yeah. Just that one by Jerry Bryant. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have a Bronco too? <laughs> no. See, I'm, I have to establish what's real and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you know of any other novel that's a co-writing effort? Is this a genre I'm just unaware of? There are some novels that have been co-written. I'm not aware of a, someone that's had the same process we've had of writing each sentence together. Um, I, you know, I know of people writing novels where they pass back and forth or, you know, yeah. one person writes this passage, another one writes it, edits it. But, but I've not heard of anybody doing exactly what we did on this book. Yeah. Right. Or Bill Clinton will co-write a novel with uh, a fam- famous uh, pulp novelist. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know if either of them actually put pen to paper, right? Right. Yeah. Probably that guy's assistant did the whole thing. The as told to, the sports yes. guy as told to, yeah. Oh yeah, that's another big one. Dick Shap. Half of his uh, half of his books aren't even credited with Pele or or whoever. So sentence by sentence, take me inside each sentence. Would well, let me back up a little bit. You have to know where the novel is going, and the novel is these sentences are all broken up, or these very short paragraphs, sometimes two or three sentences, and they're all broken up by a space. So it can be read as, in a way. You know, something like 1,200 Thoughts on Herman Melville. This this novel could be read that way. And so this gives you some freedom not to, or it would be too constricting to have to link each sentence to the next in perfect paragraph form. Did your process influence how the novel looks and reads with these uh, line breaks frequently throughout? Yeah, yeah. Um... 
that we came to that fairly early, that, that model, um, of, uh, trying to be really precise, uh, uh, and nail down a thought, a sentence, a quotation, have some white space, another one. Um, and, you know, George Saunders in his book about the Russian masters says, uh, fiction achieves its meaning, not by uh, what it concludes, but by how it proceeds. I really like that. So early on, we, we had a mode of procession where we understood how this was going to go and it changed a lot, but that stayed the same. And, uh, I think that that suggests a character. Even when she's not talking about herself, she's talking about Melville, but, but you get an idea of who is this person? Why is she being so careful? What is she after? What are her obsessions? Um, why is she proce- you know, proceeding in this way? So that we've, we had that pretty early. And that, that was a form that um, you have to, uh, each sentence led to the next. So each sentence was this information delivery system. It started somewhere, it ended somewhere. Where it ended would be the catalyst for the next sentence. Uh, so we were just paying attention, I think, to each sentence being trying to be very careful and precise and see where it would where it would lead. And I came to think going back to Harbo and Samuelson, like each sentence was almost like a, a stroke. Like you, you know, you you yep, and then you pause and you do another one. Yeah. 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 Um what about arc? What about overall arc of the book? Yeah, that was that was challenging. Uh I my background is in poetry, and so I had almost no interest in thinking about the narrative of the book, how time worked in the book. And Chris had a lot of interest in that. So he would be the one saying, we kind of have to figure out where we're going, you know, where, how's, how's it going to end? Where is there going to be some climax, whatever? Yeah. I mean, um, my background is in plotless fiction. So um, <laughs> it's not exactly my specialty, but I did, I was, you know, um, thinking that, that there had to be some you know, it's roughly a year that can be a container. It's roughly Melville's life, not in order, but taking up his life. So that gives it some shape. And then the sort of, um, the pandemic lifting gives it some shape, you know, so it's not a book that obviously it's not a plot driven book, not a lot of causation, not a lot of, you know, climactic action, but it's a book that does, um, we, we were careful to try to give it some, some sense of shape and arc. And I think it has a bit of an arc too in the character where it seems to me she's assessing her life and her marriage. And I, I feel like by the end of the book, she's sort of come to terms with those things. Yes. I think that most books where there is a character assessing their marriage, there's a, where the reader is let in on uh, some unhappiness, usually deep unhappiness, at least some ennui. And I didn't get that from this book. I thought it was really just an assessment, uh, puzzling it out or really thinking about the aspects of it. And uh, maybe that's because it would have been too hurtful to do that right next to the person you were writing each sentence with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did end up writing a bit about, we called it in the book, the bad time, which was the hardest yeah. time in our marriage. So we did actually somewhat indirectly, maybe somewhat glancingly, we did actually write about a period that was hard for us. It was. And so in the book, it's not, and in real life, it's not an open wound. It's a scar, right? It's so it's not writing into an open wound, but um, the really cool thing I think about writing about it together is it shifted the conversation from right and wrong, who was right and who was wrong. Who, who made good choices, who made bad choices. And they shifted it into an aesthetic zone where we both just cared deeply about getting these lines right on the page and depicting yeah. the marriage in a certain way. So it was really fun to work on, work together on a portion of our marriage that was, you know, a sort of a low point in the marriage and, and, and have it bring us together in this weird way. 
like a sublimation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah. also, that's sometimes how marriages get healed. Mostly, it's how marriages don't get healed. Let's have some <laughs> other project we focus on, like, say, typically a dog and then later on a kid. <laughs> That'll right. heal the marriage. So I, I'm not suggesting that you guys had this open wound of a marriage, but okay, a book about Melville, that will... That was right. We recommend it yeah. to everybody. Yeah. Right. The Batch Elder Hable method. Okay, it doesn't yeah. have to be Melville. You know, it could be any major or minor American literary figure. Uh, Longfellow. That's right. <laughs> it's Wharton. Um, you know, to the lighthouse people, we call it. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I do want to go back to the sentence by sentence. Do you mean that typically one would write a sentence and the other would check it or were different words in the sentence as it was being constructed penned or typed by a different person i was the person that typed everything so i retained that level of control but we would sit there and sort of do it out loud basically talk the sentence out out loud and then look at it on the screen together yeah Mm -hmm. There, there was a choice to be made about where are we going next yeah. Every sentence puts you at this crossroads, sort of, you can keep going or you can, you can take a turn. So where are we going next? And then once we had decided that we were trying to f- formulate the sentence really precisely. So there was this, I just felt like it was an offering up to the book where we were um, uh, together creating clauses, changing them, editing them and making sure the sentence ended in a place that gave us an, a new place to go. Yeah. So this might be a bad example. I opened randomly page uh, 156 in his renowned 90-page introduction to Pierre, he claims that Melville is, quote, the literary discoverer of the unconscious. How might this sentence have been constructed? Who starts speaking it? At what point does the other person suggest another word? Could take a sentence like that and at least give me an idea of how that sentence might have wound up in the book? Hmm. Well, so that's- I mean, it might be such a bad example that we could choose a different one to illustrate how this worked. I'm trying to think if I can remember a notable sentence that we wrote together. Um, I mean, I remember sitting there endlessly on this part where it's like times wily chargers, times, you know, where, where Emily Dickinson says something about time and Herman Melville says something about time. And we sat there writing our own sentences about time. And, and then one of us would be like, no, that's not a good sentence. That's not a good sentence. And then, then we'd go back to the research and try to find another one. And, you know, I, I just remember sitting there where we would just not be able to agree on the next sentence being good. Right. Emily Dickinson t- says time's quaint stream. That's right. Very good. Yeah. And then, and so there were two set, two uh, famous literary figures talking about time. Mm-hmm. So you had choices about which ones to quote. Right. And then you would start, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, there was this weird thing because I don't think, um, because we were both starting from a place we were unfamiliar with, if that makes sense, our starting line. So yeah. we, we meet at the starting line and it's not a, I, the, the the writing of the book was not the realization of a vision. It wasn't the realization of Jen's vision. It wasn't the realization of my vision. I can't tell you how remarkably strange that is to write a book where you're not trying to realize your vision and it's, uh, it's sort of liberating. So then in this, in this case, you're just without trying to sound too spiritual. I don't always love this craft talk, but like it's the book's vision. You're trying to understand mm-hmm. what the, what the book is and what it wants. And you're kind of, so this, this offering up, I just, that's, that's the metaphor that comes to my mind, this offering where we're working together to offer up 
a sentence to the book to see if the book wants it or like curling, you know, that weird ice sport. Sure. Like sending, or in Canada, that totally normal ice sport. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sending that, whatever the stone or whatever they call it, sending it down. Right. And then, you know, we're both like buffing the ice, trying right. to, trying to make the sentence hit its target. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there wasn't specific about the construction of the sentence, but there were the, the rearrangement of clauses and the changing of words and, and off, often trying to set up a quote because it's very quote heavy. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. When each of you would write uh, before this project, how much would you check in with the other one? Over the years, we came to check in with each other quite a bit. And, you know, I don't think we would have been able to write this book together, you know, five years ago. Uh, I mean, we both became each other's sort of closest editor, first reader, and so have been pretty involved in each other's work, but, but never wrote together, you know. So, um, yeah, I think this, this is the product of a lot of years of learning to know each other's writing and trusting each other. Yeah. Not to mention the pandemic and, um, middle age and, um, uh, place in the career. Like what, like there was a time when I was worried about tenure and like, do you, can you collaborate on a novel and would that count for, t- you know, all that? Oh, okay. <laughs> right. You'd be accused of half plagiarism. Or right. Something. Or people yeah. would think as you did, Mike, that I didn't even write this book. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was, yeah, I thought she was just being nice or, you know, throwing you a bone. <laughs> um, what about, uh, besides checking in, Chris, so Chris, you have uh, novels that are, how did you describe it? Plotless uh, conceptual fiction. So you have concepts like, oh, what if um, a famous uh, historical figure is reincarnated and assassinated day after day? Or what if a bunch of guys get together and enact one signature play from NFL history? You know, these these wild conceits. Will you bounce conceits off of her uh, just to see if that she thinks they work in a possibility? That part, no, probably. Those those speculative um, conceits are kind of uh, pinging around in my head for a long time, and I know there's something there if I can find it. The thing that Jen is really helpful with is, and, and on this book as well, is um, checking some of my excesses. And, uh, you know, because sometimes there's if, never met a joke I won't try or like, and, sh- you know, um, and so she's really good at um, curbing some of my, uh, bad impulses there. Uh-huh. And what is, how does, uh, Chris help you? Do you, I, I would, I would guess in a poetry collection, there isn't the question of, uh, checking in on conceits and I haven't, I've checked out some of your poetry, but I don't know if you have a, uh, shark versus bear contemplation <laughs> at length in, in verse form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, some, some of the ways Chris helps me is he just encourages me to finish things. Because yeah. I, I'm a, as you now know, a huge researcher. I mean, I'm a very slow and patient writer and I, I just belabor things. And he's good at just being like, you're there, just do it. Yeah. Here it is, you know, write that, that's it, you know, move on. Um, so that's that's been super helpful. And, and also just at the sentence level, just, you know, a fantastic sort of sentence level editor. So the last question is, do you think or do you wish that Melville was more knowable, that he didn't burn his letters, that there was more definitive that was known about him, that the questions were answered? I mean, I know you're a narrator. That's the quest. But if that was so readily available and right there at your fingertips, wouldn't Melville, the book would be the book, but wouldn't Melville Nalia not be what it is? Yeah, I guess I don't wish more existed. I I feel he's been 
just, I don't want to say violated, but just, I mean, I imagine he would just like to be left alone, you know, and I mean, would, would rather that we just focused on his books. And, and, you know, I, I like that how elusive he was. Yeah. And our interest in him was really artistic. So we needed that mystery, you know, I mean, there are some people who are driven crazy by not having this, the letter that he wrote to Hawthorne or the, you know, not having the stuff and, but we need, we needed the mystery. Yeah. Chris Batchelder is the author of four novels, including the throwback special, a national book award finalist. Jennifer Habel is the author of the poetry collections, Good Reason and the Book of Jane, which won the Iowa Poetry Prize. And their new novel, co-written, legitimately so, a bonafide <laughs> co-writing effort on a granular level is called Day's Work, a novel. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I did so enjoy talking with Jennifer and Chris. And you, as a Pesca Plus subscriber, I think you will get a lot out of the extended cut of the interview you just heard in which we go into depth about the mysteries that surround Herman Melville. And if you're not a Pesca Plus subscriber, wouldn't you consider becoming one? As Herman Melville said, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Kamala Harris is not popular. 538's average of polls around her have her at 39% approval, 52% disapproval. Now, Joe Biden is also doing poorly. And as often happens, the vice president's approval tracks the president's overall performance. And Biden's doing actually a little bit worse than Harris. But even in California, the vice president's home state Kamala Harris is not faring well, according to a poll from Berkeley's Institute of Governance Studies, only of Californians last year. And this was at a time when Joe Biden had a 47% approval rating and 48% disapproval. Harris had a 38% approval rating, 46% disapproval. And this poll, same institute from a few months ago, asked, if Joe Biden decides not to run for a second term for president in 2024, how would you feel about Vice President Kamala Harris running for president in 2024? 37% of Californians, Californians, said either very or somewhat enthusiastic, whereas 18% answered not too enthusiastic, and 41% said not enthusiastic at all. You know who would be enthusiastic? Republicans. I was very disappointed that Biden sent Kamala over there for the ASEAN summit. This is an important summit. It's 10 countries um, that are really focused on Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. And China's going to go bully these countries who are desperately trying to fight back. The Philippines, Malaysia, and others who want them to stop. That was Nikki Haley on CNN's State of the Union yesterday being a bit overly familiar with Vice President Harris. By sending Kamala there and not really showing that you've got seriousness seriousness on the fact that this Chinese aggression is hurting when we know most of the world trade goes through that um, the you know that area of water i mean it's a it's a mistake and again he says things i appreciate it words are fine but actions matter and if he would have gone and really made a strong point there i think that would have been much more um, important than having kamala go there and smile and take pictures Host Jake Tapper had a lot of other areas to get to. It was a very good interview. But if I were conducting it, I'd have been really tempted to ask, by the way, why do you speak of the vice president like that, Ambassador Haley? Is it that you don't think she deserves more respect just as a matter of principle? So why is Kamala Harris so disapproved of? 
It could be her race. It could be her gender. That probably plays a role, but mostly amongst voters who don't like liberal Democrats anyway, but not exclusively. I think, actually, if we had to put a finger on it, it's, well, it's mostly the macro data and the president's popularity, but if there's anything extra, it's that Kamala Harris doesn't give much to anyone other than those already enthused by Kamala Harris. Let us take this exchange on Face the Nation. The host, Margaret Brennan, was asking tough questions about abortion. What week should abortion be banned? There is a bill being introduced to the Congress claiming or stating that it should be the 24th week. So let us talk about the weeks involved. That is the framing and the nature of the argument. It is clearly not the framing that Democrats want when they speak of a right to abortion. They don't want to define the right by where it stops. They want to define it by who gets the benefit of the right. So Harris has come prepared with a counter-framing. Call it a talking point if you want to. I think you'll be able to pick it up. What is it that you believe? I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to restore the protections of Roe versus Wade. Which We're was, not trying to do something new. Well, that There's, was nebulous because it was about viability, which could be anywhere between 20 to 24 weeks. And but it, so no, 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 no. Let, that's, let's that let, was me, in let me be very clear. the Women's Health Protection Act that let the White be, House also Let me endorsed. be very clear. From day one, the president has been clear. I have been clear. We need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade into law. Since the Supreme Court took it, Congress has the power and ability to pass legislation to put those protections back in law, and Joe Biden will sign that bill. There is some portion of the electorate that might like this response, but it's the portion that is for the most expansive definition of abortion rights. They would like Harris or any other Democrat to rebut the notion, stop, we shouldn't be talking about weeks. But notice she doesn't even rebut the notion, right? She just doesn't answer the question. In fact, she doesn't answer the question when asked again. I believe that we should put the protections of Roe v. Wade into law. And again. We need to restore the protections of Roe v. Wade. I don't know what impression a persuadable voter might get. Maybe Harris's idea is that voters on this issue are unpersuadable. You just have to come across as staunch. And the more you do that, the more you will drive turnout for Democrats, especially women who want their abortion rights. But some voters are persuadable. And if you're so intent on thinking they're unpersuadable, why are you even bothering engaging in talk show interviews anyway? What she thinks or maybe thinks scans is resolved does not. It scans as a lawyerly formulation slash evasion. It doesn't remotely seem conversational. And it's also not very clear, despite how often she evokes the notion of clarity. You know, a statement being clear does not depend on how often or slowly you emphasize that it is clear. It depends on how actually clear and understandable and answering the question the statement is. My producers put together a supercut of all the times in this one interview where the vice president wouldn't answer the question about weeks and abortion bans, but keeps saying the same thing in increasingly exasperated tones, a thing that adds up to, I can't believe I'm having to say this. Congress has the ability to put back in place the rights that the Supreme Court took from the women of America. We need to restore the protections of Roe versus Wade. 
we need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade into law. We need to put back in place the protections of Roe v. Wade. You know we what? need to put into law the protections of Roe v. Wade. And that is about going back to where we were before the Dobbs decision. I believe that we should put the protections of Roe v. Wade into law. That was not a great answer. First of all, it was under Roe v. Wade that third semester trimesters were banned, constitutionally banned. So she's just avoiding saying 24 or 26 weeks, which is not even a notion she wants to convey. I don't know the best way to answer the question. I don't know that what a focus group would say or if you could cook up the perfect answer to the perfect kind of voter you're trying to talk to. I know how Harris's answer came off. I, I just was listening to that, feeling a little bit tortured, not going into it disliking the vice president, sort of rooting for her to have a good answer and then despairing when that good answer did not present itself over and over and over again. Why couldn't she just say something like, okay, you know, when you hear about an abortion or the idea of an abortion at 29, 30, 32 weeks of pregnancy, which by the way, hardly ever happens. Of course, how could your mind not go to, oh my God, that's far enough along that the baby has an excellent chance of survival. We all know people who had children prematurely or were themselves born at 30 or 31 weeks and they are here and they are fine. So you immediately say, I can't understand why you would allow an abortion at that week. But that's exactly the point. We can't understand. When we hear a weak cutoff, do we hear, oh, but the fetus had a hole in its heart or, oh, the fetus would only live for a few days or maybe a week maximum and have a painful death or, oh, the baby and possibly the mother would suffer horribly? Or do we hear that the baby would be born with profound, profound birth defects that the mother just only heard about in a recent amniocentesis or other test? We don't hear about that. And those are the stories that are the stories of late-term abortion, which is why when a legislator says cut off at X number of weeks, it doesn't capture the full essential nature of the very human decision involved. A doctor and a woman, I trust them. A state legislator, who's also maybe the kind of person who's trying for a ban at six weeks, or who's spreading disinformation about abortion and breast cancer, or who lies about the idea of partial birth abortions. Come on. Life, medicine, families in extreme situations, those aren't cut and dry. Neither should our responses to these issues be. That answer is probably too long. I mean, it's certainly longer than one time saying, I believe in Roe versus Wade. But when you add up all the times she said, I believe we should codify Roe versus Wade, it might have taken less time than just to give that answer. And that answer is not the perfect answer. But I do find that during Kamala Harris's career, she is so afraid of giving the imperfect answer, she doesn't really give any answer at all. And it all leads to a powerful political figure who isn't doing herself, her party, or her policies any favors. Let me be perfectly clear. Her answers don't have to be perfect. They really just should be clear. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is the chief lobster officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. Let us be clear. 